All right, good morning, everyone. How you guys feeling? All right, got kind of middle of the road. Woo, I like that. Uh, today we're carrying on. Uh, my name is Andy, one of the pastors here at Restore. Today we're carrying on our lavish teaching series, which again, if you're new, it's, it's kind of an awkward time to be new, but it's our bad, not yours. It's just a series on giving. Uh, there's this idea that the church just wants your money, which is not true, believe me. Um, but I will say that it can feel awkward. And so um, it is what it is. We are, uh, but it is something that we need to teach on. And so I uh, do... Full disclaimer one more time, um, especially if you're new, we are not looking for any of your money today or any time in the near future. This is mostly for those who call Restore Church their home. Uh, it's serious for them, primarily. Uh, it's not that you can't learn anything or glean anything, um, but primarily that's who it is for, all right? So we're in the series. Uh, Daniel Jansen preached last weekend, and um, this is where we've been so far in the series. We've been trying to answer questions, all right? Uh, so the first week, uh, I, I want to answer the question, why do we give? And the idea behind that message was that we should be motivated by grace, not greed or guilt. Not greed or guilt. Then uh, we talked about who gives. What is the identity of the giver? And uh, I talked about uh, the fact that we are stewards of God's money. We are not owners of our money. Even if you worked for it, uh, he puts you in the country you were born in with the talents and abilities and circumstances uh, to do that thing. He put breath in your lungs that everything belongs to him. We steward his stuff, including our own bodies but definitely our financial resources. Last week, Daniel taught on what is giving, this idea that it is both trust and worship out of Matthew 6. And today we're going to carry on kind of looking at these questions about giving by answering this new question, what do we give to? What do we give to? We're going to do what my uh, mentor, Chris Vinant, uh, he calls Google Earthing the whole Bible. We're going to pull out and look at kind of a meta-narrative of Scripture, you know, when you pull out on the map. Uh, and kind of see this big picture. We're going to look at how God's people have given throughout their history. And so what we're really going to be talking about today is the culture of God's people throughout the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this idea of culture. Uh, different cultures have different customs and vocabularies that distinguish, that distinguish them from one another. Uh, again, as, as I've traveled, this has been a, a big thing uh, I've experienced. Like, man, I, I just thought my culture was normative, and then you end up in another place, and like, we don't do that at all. We don't call that that at all. I remember I was in South Africa uh, for the first time, and I remember once uh, Grant Clark just said, um, hey, I I'm going to fetch you just now. He dropped me off at a house. He said, I'm going to fetch you just now. I was like, fetch to me is like dog. <laughs> and just now, I knew it was in five hours. <laughs> And so, uh, so I was like, cool, uh, but, but, but in South Africa, just now actually means later, which makes total sense, um, <laughs> just now. On the other hand, uh, I once heard South African stand-up comedian, host of The Daily Show, Trevor Noah, sharing a stand-up comedy special about his challenges of acclimating from South Africa to America because of our confusing vocabulary. And I don't know if you guys have seen this before, but he talks about getting tacos for the first time. That he got to America, and he was like... Everyone's like, bro, you got to try tacos, you got to try tacos, you got to try tacos, you got to try tacos. He's from South Africa, they don't have tacos there. And so a guy that worked with him said, man, you got to hit this taco truck with us. It's not just tacos, it's tacos from a taco truck. And then the guy told him, be careful, they're delicious, but you pay later. He's like, what? <laughs> he kind of insinuated he might have some stomach troubles. And then he just was like, why would we eat these if that's the situation? And so he was nervous. And then he said it got worse, though, because then they asked him if he wanted a napkin. Now, what we call napkins in America, pretty much the entire English-speaking world, except for us, calls them serviettes, okay? What we call napkins in South Africa, they call cloth diapers. <laughs> and so he's just like, man, how intense are these tacos? 
Uh, in Japan, uh, it's common for people to share their age the, when they meet for the first time and ask the other person how old they are. Uh, it's designed because there, being old isn't bad. Here, we worship youth in America. There, you honor those who are older. So people who are older want you to know they're older so that you'll respect them. That's kind of the vibe. Uh, that's not the case here. Uh, my daughter, Olivia, loves asking everyone how old they are. And she's had some awkward run-ins with uh, middle-aged women. I'm just going to say it. And she's like, how old are you? She, it's exciting to her. Uh, and then they're like, I can't say. And, and, when, and when you tell a kid, I can't say, they're like, Mis- mystery or a surprise. That's the, that's the worst way to shake them off your tail. <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> it's a secret. So some cultural differences are funny, like having vastly different meanings of the same word or hand gestures. But some cultural differences have a massive impact on how people live their lives in these and different cultures. Uh, in her book, Foreign to Familiar, uh, is a woman named Sarah Lanier. She breaks up uh, kind of all cultures in the world into two types of cultures. You might have heard this before. It's really big in missiological spaces where we talk about missions work. Uh, hot and cold climate culture. Hot cultures and cold climate cultures. Uh, now, I know you can't really read these, so I'm going to walk through them, but there's hot climate and cold climate. And uh, hot climate uh, is essentially the West. Essentially, it's white people. I'm going to be honest with you guys. Like, European heavy uh, dominated. It's literally cold culture because they're up towards, like, the North Pole. Uh, Hot climate, uh, hot culture is the rest of the world, but especially below the equator, okay? So there's the West, and then there's, um, uh, there's the cold culture, and then the hot culture. Uh, now, some differences between cultures that come up big, uh, kind of Western versus Eastern, Northern versus Southern. Uh, the first one is this, is, is uh, in hot climate culture, they're relationship-oriented, where cold climate, they are task-oriented, okay? And if you've ever been uh, in another country, oftentimes you'll encounter moments where you're like, I thought we were doing this thing. How are we doing this thing? When are we doing this thing? They're like, oh, it'll be fine. We're together. And, and there's a real beauty to that. Uh, full disclosure, I am a hot climate man in a cold climate body, okay? So we work through these. You guys have all had meetings with me. You were like, I like that, but what, what's next? Uh, hot climate, cold climate. Hot climate, hot climate is indirect communication. Uh, so you'd rather be nice than rude. Uh, often is kind of the vibe. Uh, cold climate is more direct communication, especially when you're trying to get stuff done. Um, hot climate, again, you think more in terms of group identity, so your family is a really big deal. In America, we worship individualism and your, yourself, uh, and uh, in a hot climate culture, um, it's group identity. So in a hot climate culture, very few people would ever consider moving to the other side of a country for a job to make more money when you could be with your family. Uh, again, not saying good or bad, I'm just saying that's how it is uh, in, in you know, cold climate. We're like, i got to go be myself. I'm going to move on the other side of the country, do my thing, whatever. Uh, hot climate's inclusion-oriented. Cold climate's privacy-oriented. So what that means with inclusion is in hot climate, the assumption is you're invited always. There's a beautiful hospitality nature to it. Uh, uh, Kaya, who's in Northern Africa, our friend that we, we sent a little while ago, uh, she's mentioned to me so many times she gets coffees uh, with Tunsi women, and they will bring four people with them. And they agreed to a one-on-one meeting as far as she knew. It's like, we should get coffee. She's like, yeah, we should. And then it's like, just the fam's there. <laughs> Same thing with house parties. They bring everyone uh, to these uh, things. Um, uh, uh, event-oriented versus time-oriented is the last one we'll look at uh, for illustration purposes. Uh, event-oriented is um, this will take however long it takes to get the, the events done that need to get done. What needs to happen is important, not the time that we set. 
Again, I'm a very hot climate man, okay? Time-oriented goes, hey, we said 9 o'clock. We haven't done the three things we're here to do, but it's 9 o'clock, and, and on and on we go. Now, again, this is pretty extreme in some parts of the world. In Southeast Africa, in Tanzania and Kenya, it's actually considered rude to be on time. It's like you're rushing them, literally. They'll say, like, hey, why are you rushing me? What are you doing? Why are you being demanding? And they're like, dude, because everyone's supposed to come 15 to 30 minutes late as the starting points uh, and stuff like that. Now, what I want you to see is that different cultures have very specific differences in how they approach life and how it shapes their, their, their view of life. Now, and as, the, as, as people of the kingdom of Jesus, we should have our own culture. We should be a culture within a culture. Uh, we are the salt of the earth, Jesus said, the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We literally make the spaces and environments we're in taste different. Smell like our presence should impact the context we're in in a positive way. The light of the world, we, that we lighten things up. Like we, we, we make truth easier to see. In the, in the New Testament, again, we're referred to as exiles. Our home is, is not the country or culture we find ourselves in. This is why the citizenship to the country we live in should be way secondary to the citizenship in heaven. And why... The, the, the race we are a part of should be secondary to the fact that we are the chosen race, according to First Peter, that we're a new nation, a new culture. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. And a marker of God's people, a God culture, throughout history, for as long as God has been revealing himself to people, is that they would have a culture of generosity. And that's because from the beginning, God designed it that way. And so all throughout history, from God calling Abraham all the way to this present moment, God's people are called to be generous. God's people are not the people quibbling over $2 when the, the check comes. God's people, I, I, God's people I, the Royce has said this before, God's people don't Venmo for under $5. <laughs> if you really need it, then we should have covered you in the first place. God's people don't see people who don't have and laugh at them or go, oh, if they worked harder or whatever. They go, man, how can we help? How can we make things right? So what I want to do today is walk through the entire big picture storyline of Scripture and give you a biblical theology of giving as I endeavor to answer, like, what do we give to, okay? What do we give to? Because the patterns of generosity God calls his people to continue today. Um, the most well-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16. We've got it right here. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It, it, that's, that's a very famous Bible verse. It also encapsulates a lot of what we're going to talk about today. God loves the world and he gives. And as we follow him, we, we, we end up in eternal life. And eternal life is not just life in heaven. It's abundant life even here and now. And so as we encourage you to consider, you know, like the press cards thing, the who to, what to give to you monthly, all that stuff, uh, giving, praying, supporting, um, we'd want to be in response to this God who has given already, okay? Now, um, in terms of like the whole Bible overview, we're just going to look at three Three big ideas, okay? Uh, and these are the three things God's people give to in Scripture, okay? Uh, they are percentage giving, giving to the poor, and giving to projects. Percentage giving, 
giving to the poor and giving to projects. So three Ps, percentage, poor, projects. If you want to just remember that, percentage, poor, projects. The first one is this, is percentage giving. Uh, in the beginning, God creates the world, and he makes us stewards. We've talked about that. He's this generous God. And, and then from there, you just see throughout the storyline of Scripture that, that they offer back a portion or a proportional percentage gift. In Genesis chapter 4, there's a story of Cain and Abel. We're not going to get into it right now. Um, but they, they offer a tenth of what they have as an act of worship or a portion. Later on in Genesis, God calls a man named Abraham to a specific purpose. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the mission of Abraham, really the mission of Israel, which is the mission of the church today, is that we are blessed to be a blessing to others. That the way we live reveals who God is to others. We want to see the nations of the world meet Jesus, be transformed by Jesus. Um, Abraham, it, it continues to go on in, in, in Genesis chapter 14. Um, Abraham's nephew, it's a wild story. Um, Abraham's nephew Lot is kidnapped. And then Abraham's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to get him, okay? Uh, think like an action movie, uh, what's that? Uh, take, it's like, take it, like, I'm going to get you. I will find you, and I will kill you. And he goes with an army, and he kills a lot of, just a lot of fools, I'm going to be honest with you. And he gets his nephew back. And then after the battle, he, he encounters this man named Mel, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of Shalom. He's the prince or the king of peace. Sound familiar? And, um, and he comes out with bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham. Um, a lot of people think this is Jesus, uh, pre-incarnate Jesus. That the king of kings, the prince of peace, who's also a priest, someone who mediates between God and man. And in that space, Genesis 14, 20 says this. This is what Abraham says. He says, and blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And this is the origin of the specific number a tenth, uh, percentage giving. Uh, we see this again, uh, Jacob in Genesis 28. Uh, um, he says, of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And then the tithe was later formalized uh, in, uh, in the law uh, for all of Israel. And even within the tithe, there were three types of tithes, but they're all percentage giving. Uh, the first one is the priestly tithe. This one probably would be pretty familiar to you even now. Um, but this is the tie that goes to the temple and to the leaders of the temple and to funding the spiritual work of Israel. And it's a literal 10%. Um, uh, and so the first 10% goes to the spiritual life of the nation. Um, the second was the tithe of the feasts. And full disclosure, this is my favorite one, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 27 uh, says, Each year you were to set aside a tenth of all the produce grown in your fields, you are to eat a tenth of your grain, new wine, and fresh oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to have his name dwell, so that you will always learn to fear the Lord your God. But if the distance is too great for you to carry it, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, and since the Lord your God has blessed you, then exchange it for silver, take the silver in your hand, and go to the place the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the silver on anything you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything you desire. You are to feast there in the presence of the Lord and rejoice with your family. 
And then he says, do not neglect the Levite within your city gate, since he has no portion of inheritance among you, because the Levites were the priests. They were supported by the tithe. Uh, but if you're in a place, you're far away from the temple, you need support, that kind of thing. But this is essentially like the celebration fund. We're to be a celebrating people. This idea that Christians are sad religious people does not line up with what Scripture says. Over He commands them to party. All of the feasts, it's a lot of partying. They could spend this money on whatever they desired, ox and sheep, wine, whatever they felt like eating and drinking. So I literally, we spend money on celebrations as a church. And I love this about God. He hardwires this into the law so that people would spend some money on themselves and on what refreshes them and their friends. Not all of our money, all of the time, but some of our money often. Number three, uh, this last tithe, this is the tithe for the poor in Deuteronomy 14. It says, at the end of every three years, bring a tenth of all your produce for that year and store it within your city gates. Then the Levite, who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your gates may come, eat, and be satisfied. By the way, a direct application of this would be the people we just talked about from Afghanistan. We are not the nation of Israel, but there are people who are in a space, a country we occupy, who are on their own. He says to help them and to bless them. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So according to, again, Deuteronomy 14, the tithe was given every third year. Uh, so the least often, the least frequent one. It was given to the Levite, you know, the priest again, uh, the alien, which is the foreign national, the orphan, uh, or the widow, because God cares about the poor. Um, so summarizing the three types of the Old Testament percentage giving thing, the percentage thing, um, it's, it's not 10%. of you caught that? It's 23%. Got 10% for the temple, got 10% for a party fund, we've got 3% um, for the poor. And so uh, God's vision for giving involves all three. I think sometimes we think like, I'm going to give to church, I'm going to do self-care, I'm going to care about the poor. And depending on your personality type, you're like, this is what we should really be giving to. And Jesus is like all of it. I love that at the wedding at Cana, he was like, guys, we can't spend money on a wedding. We could do more church services, right? Does that make sense? Uh, that, that he was a, a God who, there is worship, there is celebration, and there is generosity to the poor. And so way to even think of your giving and your financial stewardship is like, God, you, neighbor. God, you, neighbor. But again, we're, in all of these contexts, we're blessed to be a blessing. So when you get a raise at work, it's not just for you, it's for those who are going to be blessed by you. You have been blessed, but it's to bless others. Um... In Malachi chapter 3, uh, Malachi, Israel's in a bad spot. They are far from the heart of God. Uh, it's a nightmare of a situation. They are not worshiping God. They have turned to idols. And in Malachi chapter 3, this is what Yahweh says. It says, since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Now hold it there real quick. He is calling them to repentance and faith. He's, he's saying, return to me. Just think about the times in your life where you know, man, I am far from God if I'm honest. I might be in a church, but I know what's really going on in my heart. I know what's really going on in my mind. I know what's really going on in my relationships. And you have a moment like the prodigal son where you wake up and you're like, what? How do I go back? And it's fascinating to me because this is the instructions he gives Israel. They go, how can we return? And he says this. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? How do we rob you, you ask, by not making a payment of the tenth and the contributions? 
You are suffering under a curse, yet because you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Now, why would that be the the heartbeat of repentance? And again, it's because it can't be faked. Jesus said, where your, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If you throw money down, right, if you have, that's skin in the game. That's an a, a investment into that relationship. It's, it's true or it's not. You can, you can praise God with your mouth and then live however you want, man. Giving, is a, it's real or it isn't. You're really following this God or, or you're not. You're not making those sacrifices to idols. You're making them to him, which is what they were doing. They were turning to other idols. It's the same thing we do. Uh, I was talking to um, an older pastor recently, and he said, you know, I was getting ready for this series. He said, you know, Andy, people don't give for one of two reasons, money problems or spiritual problems. And the church is designed to help them with both of them. So for some of us, it's a worship problem. It's, it's a spiritual problem. We have to work that out in repentance. And for some of us, it's we're, we're in debt. We, we don't know how to do it. We, we've never been taught how to steward our money. We need help with that. We'd love to help you with that. We live a generous lifestyle in general, not just towards the church. But, but either way, often what we do is the way that our idolatry works itself out, it's what we spend our money on. It's comfort. It's security. It's acceptance. It's power. You can use money in a sinful way in any of those areas. You buy stuff to impress people. You buy stuff to feel good. You save money to protect yourself. You oversave. You hoard even. And so he calls them back to worship through percentage giving, which is fascinating. And then the last thing we'll look at in terms of, of tithing is in Matthew 23, percentage giving. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. They're the spiritual leaders of Israel at the time. or They, they, had a, they didn't lead all of Israel, but they led a big chunk of Jews at that time. And, uh, and they thought they were better than everyone. They were really religious. They were really judgmental. Um, they, and, and oftentimes they would do stuff that was right, but for the completely wrong reasons. And in Matthew 23... Uh, he rebukes them. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin. I mean, they're tithing from their spice rack. Just think about that. And yet you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then Jesus, he doesn't do an either or. I want you to see this. He says, These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you, you strain out at a gnat but gulp down a camel. It's like, you tithe, but you don't love people. <laughs> but Jesus goes, you should tithe because you love God and you love people. I uh, said, you shouldn't stop tithing, right? You should, have, you should be doing that. You should have done the former, but you've neglected the latter. And throughout the scripture, we see the pattern of men and women of God have been asked to give intentional, a regular percentage of their income to God through the temple or through the church. Um, for us at Restore, we do believe tithing uh, is kind of like the training wheels of generosity, like 10% is a baseline um, to, to, to give if you, if you are able to. Um, and again, it always sounds like a lot, but for me and Jack, we've done our entire adult life because we've been Christians our entire adult life, and we were discipled 10%. Uh, I was at, I was at uh, The Rock with Miles. He was like, 10% pre-tax. I was like, whoa, we did that. I'm not pushing that on you. But what I'm saying is, is we learn that early, and when you don't have that much money, it looks like a lot. And then when you finally make enough money to sustain yourself, the number's high. So it always seems like it's too much. Does that make sense? Like, like when you don't have that much, it's a little number, but it feels percentage-wise like it's massive. 
On the flip side, when the number's just big, you, you, everything's bigger, but when that's bigger, you can forget God and do your own thing. And again, I understand there are reasons some people cannot do 10%, and I'll talk about this next week. I do believe we're called to something different than a tithe in the new covenant, um, but what we're not called to is less than sacrificial giving. That's what I want to be clear on. Um, it's not like, man, that was the Old Testament. We wild out now. <laughs> you know, we got a 40% self-care fund. Um, building a temple to myself, all right? Like, like, that's not the new covenant either. Um, second thing that we're called to, so there's a the percentage giving, um, and then there's giving to the poor in a free will way. So it's not the one that happened every third year in the nation. It's just how you live your life in generosity towards the poor. In Proverbs 19, 17, it says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. That rhymes. And he will repay him for his deed. God cares about the poor, and so should we. That when we're generous to the poor, we're generous to God. We see this Matthew 25 with Jesus. He says a similar thing. Throughout Scripture, there are commands by God to care for the poor and not to take advantage of the poor. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was this uh, idea of gleaning in Leviticus. And, and the idea was the wealthiest people at that time, the farmers, they were called to leave the edges of their fields to not, hard, not take the food in for themselves, not make as much profit as they could, and let people live off that, that, that portion. Does that make sense? And so it was built in. The wealthiest people literally would, would, would um, leave it for them. The grain wasn't cut, bundled, processed, bagged, transported. Matthew 6, um, time-wise. Okay. Uh, Matthew 6, verses 2 through 4. So New Testament now is Jesus. He says, when you give to the needy. Now, when Jesus says when you, he does this with two things that I think we think um, that means, you know, it's, it's, he says when you give to the needy and when you fast. And I think we're like, well, when you fast, it's just I never will. <laughs> like this is a command, if I were to fast, this is how to fast. Or if I were to give to the needy, this is how I would give to the needy. But actually, the assumption is, is that you would be doing this. The when you is, is an assumption. It says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Again, this, isn't, this is a when you do it, not an if you do it. This is the people of God thing all throughout Scripture. And he says the way we do it matters, though. Again, we talked about not being motivated by greed. And you're motivated by greed when you give to people so you can look good. It's for your benefit. So here's the deal. Like, right, like, like we don't do it to show off. I'm not, there's pastors. I look at social media. I'm like, embarrassed. It's like, look what I did. I'm awesome. There is a wicked version of secrecy, like to cover up abuse or corruption or lies. But there is a virtue of secrecy when you're covering up the good stuff that you did, not so you get credit. You anonymously give. Uh, my spiritual director, she literally talked to me about it. She said, uh, that's literally a spiritual discipline, doing something in secret. That's, that's good. I got a good secret. I blessed this person. They don't know it was me. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, and, and that's how he calls us to give. So, so we do it because we love God. We bless the poor.
We don't do it so the poor feel indebted to us or lose their dignity or feel dependent upon us. And we don't do it to get people to go, you're amazing, you're so kind. We don't do celebrity giving, <laughs> just tax write-off giving a lot of the time. We go, I do it in secret. I do it for my father. Acts chapter 4, um, we see even the poor amongst those in the church. It says, and with great power, it's the early church now, post-Jesus, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had needs. When this kind of, things happen, when this kind of thing happens, you know the kingdom of God is among you. By the way, uh, a couple of things. This isn't communism. Because they do it on their own. They're, by the, they're brought by the Spirit. Also, we know the way that the, the passage continues in the book of Acts, that Peter tells them uh, if someone gets killed because they lied about their giving, whole other thing. Don't have time for that today. <laughs> but Peter says, dude, it was yours to keep. You didn't have to give this. But he pretended like he gave. He sold his house and he pretended like he was giving it all to show off. And, uh, and they actually say, hey, you didn't have to. You, you were, it was yours to keep all of it. It was up to you to give. Um, and so, again, this isn't like they were being strong-armed or forced to do it. And it wasn't like if you, uh, if you are rich, you're in sin. But if you're rich, you need to be very careful, the Bible says, to steward your money. It's harder to steward it when you are wealthy. So this isn't communism. It's not no one has anything or everyone has the same thing. It's no one ha- doesn't have what they need. You see that? As needs come up in the community, we go, hey, no brother or sister of ours should be on the street if we're followers of Jesus. We've got to figure that thing out, right? No one's going hungry in our community. We've got to figure that thing out. Um, this is why we've spent tens of thousands of dollars over the last year and a half on things like rent assistance, counseling subsidies, supporting people between jobs, pandemic stuff. The church is meant to be a countercultural community, again, with our own culture. And we see the church living this out when it comes to money and possessions. Um, Tim Keller speaks about how um, the early church was different than the culture around it. And um, he quotes a letter. I don't know who, who said it originally. Um, but essentially he says, these Christians are so strange. They, they, are promiscu- they are promiscuous with their dining room tables. And they are stingy with their beds. In a culture that was all about, kind of, it was a sex-positive culture, Rome. Do whatever you want with whoever you want, whenever you want and you don't share anything, right? It's kind of the, like the world we live in normally. So they were the opposite, man. They, they're, they're, they're sharing their stuff, but then they're honoring Jesus in this way. Uh, John Tyson in New York, he jokes that the early church couldn't keep their wallet in their pants. <laughs> what do you need, man? What do you need? They stand out in the culture in a huge way. And so that's wealthy people helping people in the congregation who don't have as much, and they don't make them feel bad about it. And that doesn't mean you don't help people learn how to do things like budget or get a better job or whatever it is. But in the meantime, you're walking with them like family to get them to that space. When someone's going through a really hard time where we're cooking meals, we're, we're bringing stuff. Again, the church is blessed to be a blessing. People in the church, multiple people in the church have been given cars before. We can go on and on and on. That should be normal in the kingdom of heaven. move to my, my last point, and that's this. It's uh, projects, all right? So we've got percentage giving. We've got the poor. 
and then we've got kingdom projects. And this is kind of like um, whenever we do give love, this falls underneath that. It's like a project, it's initiative, I think we're moving towards. Um, we see this in the construction of the temple in the Old Testament. Like bring this stuff out for this project, literally. Um, um, uh, and then um, in the New Testament, we see it with supporting different churches. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, um, I'll read verses 1 to 8, and we'll close here in a second. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They're both poor and excited to give what they can. Again, I've said this before, it's not about the number, it's what the number means to you. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. And this has to always be the order that our giving comes in. First, we give ourselves to the Lord. You don't just do it in response to a sermon. You don't do it because you're peer pressured. You're, you, you get with the Lord. That's why even this thing with the, the carts, it's, it's for you to pray and ask God. Again, we will do ministry with what comes in. There's a part of me that's definitely hoping people will increase giving, but some of you guys are going to have to decrease your giving based on what's happened. You haven't looked at it in a while. And I'm trusting if God's speaking to everyone, he's going to provide what we all need, what the church needs. But we give ourselves to the Lord first. So we urge Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace, this, this act of giving. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I am not saying this is a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. So when Paul writes to the church in Corinth about the kind of church they should be, he says they should be a church of, of faith and, and, and speech and knowledge and all that stuff. But he also says they should excel in financial generosity. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. We should want to grow in giving. Me and Jackie, that's something we've been about. We've, we want to keep growing in giving. But here's the other thing. We're called to give with joy. Um, one of my favorite moments of someone giving to a project, Kingdom Project with Joy, was a couple of years ago. Um, we asked our kids to all pray about what they wanted to give to Kyle and Kaya for Give Love. Um, missionary couple we sent out. And I'll never forget, I mean, they all prayed about it, and uh, I think Clive dropped like $10 in. Uh, I think Cal did a couple more. And I forget, I think Olivia had like $2 and some coins. And she put them in a little like purse, like a little zip-up, little, like, little purse. And I'll never forget, she ran up, and she said, here's your money, Kaya, and she threw it at her. <laughs> and she was like pumped. Felt a little demeaning, but she was just so excited. That, man, I'm pumped to do this. I'm pumped to give this thing to you, Jesus. And if I'm not, get my heart to the space where I am. Like, I want to pray about becoming more generous. I don't want to just leave it there. And go, oh, that's for other people. Every single one of you in your own way. And listen, there are different people in this room with different socioeconomic statuses, different financial situations, different spiritual gifts, different homes, different yards, different abilities, different margins of time, but whatever you have, it's sufficient to bless others. You guys catch that? We all bring different stuff to the table, 
but it's significant to bless others. I always think of this story, but I think it's an important one, is um, in the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. That whole story is this poor little boy would like a filet of fish, happy meal, <laughs> a couple of fishies, a little pita bread. Jesus goes, that'll be enough. That'll be enough. We're going to feed everyone here. So whatever you have, bring it. Whatever God's calling you to bring, bring it. But whatever it is, it's significant. If it's God's called you to give it, it's significant. Even if it feels smaller than you'd like it to be, or if it feels like more than you feel like you can trust him with, bring it to the table and let him do his thing. What I want you to do is just pray about how the Spirit wants you to respond to this message. It may be connected to you, giving to the church, the pledge card, all that stuff. But actually, uh, just big pictures. There's someone in this room he wants you to bless financially, practically. When we think through those, those Afghani refugees, he might be calling you to do something radical for them. My big, my big issue is, do we have hearts of generosity in this church, not what is the budget? Sometimes the budget reflects a lack of generosity in a church, but not always. But my heart is that we become a generous people who go, I love Jesus enough to actually respond with this area of my life. That culture says, can't touch this. We open it to him. And so I want to encourage you guys, um, uh, after communion especially, to think through and ask the Spirit, you know, what, what are you calling me? Who are you calling me to bless? And how are you calling me to bless them? Financially, especially.